Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7 is where we are this morning. Hear God's word. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff before his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. In verse 6, for us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It sends the reading of God's words. Praise the Lord. Well, this Friday is Christmas Day. And as happens every year, Christmas Day is followed by what? The day after Christmas. The 26th. Which is, as if, at least if you've had mine experience, is almost inevitably an inherent letdown day. After the weeks and perhaps... For the better part of a month, we have had this build-up to this Christmas Day thing where we have gone to events galore, and there's the hustle and bustle of the season, and there's, you're looking forward to getting gifts. And if you're a parent with small children like me, you're really looking forward to, to giving gifts and the excitement that is coming with that day. But on the 26th, the 26th, we wake up to what? The trash strewn across the house. And the leftovers and two-week-old Christmas cookies that you don't know why you're still eating. And grouchy children that had their entire way the day before and thought that that was the new norm. There's nothing but a mess. You have returned back on the 26th to the mundane of life, to the difficulties of life. Another example of this can be the way you feel when you go to see an epic movie. So you have nothing to do during this Christmas season, and so on a Tuesday afternoon, you've decided to go see a movie with your, maybe your family or some friends or some particular epic out in the theater this week. You may have heard of it. It seems to be dominating my Facebook page. But there you go and see one of these epic, great movies that often comes out during the Christmas season. And for a few short hours, just like in the Christmas season, you're caught up into something great. And you're moved by the characters, and you're moved by the events of that story And then the movie ends, and the credits roll, and you walk back out of that theater through the dingy foyer and back out into the cold to your car, and you go back to your normal, mundane life. It is all quite the letdown, isn't it? But both what what December 26th and the great epic movies point to and the reaction and internal feeling that we get emotionally from that letdown is communicating something about the human condition, about the human experience that we all need. 
And that is to be caught up into a story and to be drawn into something that is greater than ourselves. Not simply for a couple weeks in the story of Christmas or for a couple hours in the great stories and epics of a great movie. But we need a story to be drawn into something that changes the trajectory of our life and changes the paradigm and perspective of our life so that the mundane days like the 26th will become very pivotal and begin to be seen in light of the larger story. Theologians say that the Bible has given us such a story. Theologians call the, the, the scriptures, and they see as they look at the, the span, it's not just a bunch of inner disconnected books that the Bible is, but instead it is a larger narrative that runs from beginning to end. If you're a Harry Potter fan, how many books are there in the Harry Potter series? There's six, right? And they are six different books. Is there seven? We'll chop off the Revelations version of Harry Potter then. Uh, well, so there's seven books in the Harry Potter series. So, so all seven books, and they're different books, but they are, and they're telling each within those books a smaller microcosmic story within each of those books with their own themes, but they're all caught up in the larger story of the series. It is building, and that is actually how the Bible functions and works as well. There is a long series of books, but it's telling one story. And what we see in the scriptures is it is this, this story of the scriptures that we must be caught up into. And Isaiah 9, the passage that we read this morning, like one of those singular books, and simply this passage, we are, give, we are given a microcosm of the narrative of a whole and drawn into the story as at large. But in order to understand what is going on in Isaiah 9, we need to understand the context of the story. In order to see the full beauty of what is going on here, we need to see the historical context of what precedes what Isaiah is communicating to us in chapter 9. So here's the historical context of Isaiah, and in particular these verses. This is going on about 700 years before the advent of Jesus Christ, before he comes onto earth. And at this time, God's people, the Israelites, are divided into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And the great power in the region during this time that dominates the region and essentially rules over all the countries in Canaan and in various parts of the Middle East there during that season of history is Assyria. Not Syria, Assyria. A-S-S-Y-R-I-A. I spelled out to you for a reason and will become clear in just a second. And they have dominion over both Israel and Judah. Now, during this time, there are a group of people that decide that they do not want to live under the rule of Assyria anymore, and they are led by a nation known as Syria. You see the confusion. God is in heaven laughing about this confusion as we try to read this. But it is Syria, not us Syria. And Assyria, what Syria is doing is they are gathering other nations around them in the hopes of creating a coalition that can rebel against Assyria and defeat the Assyrian rule over them. And one of those groups that they recruited to themselves was the kingdom of Israel. And they are also seeking to recruit to this coalition the kingdom of Judah as well. But Judah has refused, and their king, Ahaz, has refused to join the coalition in rebelling against Assyria. It's obviously King Ahaz decided that it was not a good idea to rebel against the superpower. And so for self-preservation, said, I don't want anything to do with this. But apparently, when you didn't join the other groups, they decided that if you're not for us, you're against us. So all this coalition, including the kingdom of Israel, and joined with Syria. And instead of, instead of attacking Assyria, 
they turn and attack little old Judah. That is what is going on historically during this scene. And the context in beginning in chapter 7 is we begin to read about um, Judah's response to this. Isaiah is coming to King Ahaz in the midst of this invasion of Judah by this great coalition. And, and, and they're very concerned and they're full of fear. And Isaiah, the prophet, comes to Ahaz and he says, do not fear. Do not put your trust in men. In fact, God wants to give you a sign. That's what's going on in chapter 7 of Isaiah. In fact, he, he prompts Ahaz. He says, ask God for a sign. He wants to give you a sign that he's going to provide and protect you in the midst of this. But Ahaz won't do it. He won't ask for a sign because Ahaz has already made up his mind as to how he's going to seek to protect his country and how he's going to defend off this coalition is that he has turned to the great power Assyria. He has tattletailed on the coalition and he has aligned himself with the Assyrian nation and asked for them to send troops in to protect him from this coalition. So what has he done? Instead of trusting in God, he has trusted in the power of men to provide for him. Well, Isaiah says, well, you didn't ask for a sign, but in light of what you've decided to do, I'm going to give you one anyways. And picking up in verse 10, he says this of chapter 7, Isaiah 7, verse 10. And again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Remember the asking, let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. So he, he veins spirituality in this. I won't put the Lord to the test by asking for something of him. And he said, hear then, O house of David. This is Isaiah speaking. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And here is the sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. We love that verse. And we connect it to Christmas. But the actual context of that verse is the midst of a prophetic rant by Isaiah. That things, this is not the way it is supposed to go about. That this son shall be born and his name will be Emmanuel. But Isaiah goes on to say this. That after the son is born, here's what's going to happen. Verse 15. And he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. And the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day of Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. What Isaiah is communicating here, what he's prophesying, is that after this son is born, you will be delivered from this coalition, but something worse is about to fall on you. The, the, the coalition of Syria and the kingdom of Israel, they will be dispersed, but something worse, and that is the, what is worse, is the king of Assyria will now fall upon you and you will be his prey. You will essentially be enslaved to him because you have asked for his help. And this is exactly what happens. Ahaz signs a treaty with Assyria, but the payment for receiving their help, you know how this is. Whenever you ask the governments for something, they're going to ask you to pay up. And the same thing happens with Assyria here. Ahaz calls the Assyrian troops in, but they say, because we have done this, because you've signed this treaty and we have protected you, he crushed them with a crushing tax burden and sent the kingdom of Judah into a spiraling depression. That was not only a financial depression, they were essentially an enslaved people in which all of their lands and all of their flocks had, and all the, the fruits of their labors had to be sent to Assyria as payments. Because instead of trusting in God, they had trusted in men. And as a result, the people of Judah are sent into physical, emotional, and even worse, spiritual slavery and spiritual darkness. 
This begins a season of great darkness within the kingdom of Judah. So much so that it says this at the end of chapter 8 of Isaiah and talking about the curses that are going to become, that are going to come on this country because they have trusted men and not God. It says this in verse 21 of chapter 8. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Isaiah is making things very clear that things in the kingdom of Israel, in the kingdom of Judah in particular, are not as they should be. The entire country, because they trust man instead of God, has been thrust into the darkest, desperate, most oppressed place of spiritual slavery. And Isaiah uses the imagery of darkness here. This, this idea and use of, of darkness is used throughout the Old Testament in particular. And it's used in various ways throughout the scriptures. But the most profound and most often used ways is it signifies the lack of God's saving presence in your life. They said, God, we don't need your saving presence. We're going to trust in men. And so God says, okay, have it your way. And he removed his saving presence from Judah. Now, that doesn't mean he wasn't present. When God is not there in a saving way, there's only one other way in which God is there. And that is in a judgment way. So now all they've experienced in regards to God's presence is not his blessings, but his cursings. And Darkus also points out the moral depravity of people is often how it's used as well. As a result of God removing his blessing and removing his salvation from the people of Judah, they fall into deep spiritual slavery, moral depravity as an entire picture. And it is a picture of what happens when people reject the true king. We go from bad to worse. We have a description of this in profound ways in the book of Judges. If you've ever read that book, it is quite disturbing. Don't read it before bed. Because the entire book of Judges is it's about the fact that Judah and Israel need a king. And the, main, the motto of that book is, in those days there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And what happens in the book of Judges? Things go from bad to worse to worse. And that is what is going on in the kingdom of Judah and if we pull ourselves back, and if we face the reality of our day, if we're able to pull ourselves out of being Crosby songs and normal Rockwell pictures, as wonderful as they are, and they capture the imagination. But in some ways, the beauty of this season reflects and makes the darkness of this world all the more dark. The reality is, is Syria is still fighting. The reality is, is the, the, the things that are going on in Judges still go on in this world. This is a dark place. And for many of us, we are, we are consumed and distracted and distressed by the moral depravity we even see in our own lands. Why? Because we have rejected God as king. And you, when you reject him as king, you reject his laws, you reject his savior... It means nothing, nothing good is going to come of that, but things are going to go from bad to worse. We are wringing our hands, and we ought to be in many ways. In this sense, because we know the pattern has continued throughout history that when people reject God as their king, things are going to get worse and worse and worse. And this is the reality of the world that we live in. But we are not living in a fairy tale world. I love, there was an old show, or a couple years ago, there was a show, I believe it was on ABC, in which, and it may still be on, but the whole premise of the show is it's fairy tale characters 
that have fallen out of their fairy tale, but they haven't gone to hell, where did they go? They fall to earth. The hell of fairy tale characters is the world that we live in. This kind of depiction in the darkness of the season and juxtaposing it with how we sing and, and, and the beauty that, and the light that we see in the season is, is, is most profoundly th- seen, I think, in an old song by Simon and Garfunkel from their, their, their CD in the 1960s. Oh, it was like a bunch of, of herbs, wasn't it? Parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme, something like that. The last song on that CD, for those of you that are a little bit older than me, you may remember it. You may have been around when they released it. God bless you. But the last song on that CD is Silent Nights. So you may remember what happens during their rendition of Silent Night. And you know a, a rendition of Silent Night by Simon and Garfunkel would be beautiful. But as they're singing Silent Nights, what comes on in the background of their music? News accounts. There's a news commentator beginning, beginning to give the news of the day. And during the course of the news of the day, he, behind Silent Night being sung, the news, uh, the news guy gives uh, the news of a comedian who dies of an overdose. And he speaks of the racial tensions that are raging across the United States and the tragedies of the Vietnam War. And then he ends, the last news bulletin is about the indictment of a man who murdered eight women. And the hauntingness of the song is this, that as Simon and Garfunkel sing, they begin to move to the background. Silent night goes away, and the news comes to the forefront. It is making a statement about the realities of the world that we live in, that we love to sing silent nights, but it is anything but peaceful. It is dark, and that song is haunting because of how true it is. Do we allow ourselves to see and feel the darkness and brokenness that is around us and that's in this world? Christmas time is designed to make you feel it that way. I don't know in God's providence why he gave us Christmas season. We don't know necessarily what time of the year Jesus was born, but it is providential that Christmas season is at the darkest time of the year. That we have the reflection of light in the midst of the darkness. But this is the backdrop of Isaiah. The darkness in the land of Judah, emotionally, financially, physically, spiritually, but it's in the midst of the darkness that Isaiah 9 shines the most beautifully and most brilliantly. Because in Isaiah 9, and why Isaiah 9 is so wonderful and so beautiful is because of the darkness of chapter 7, chapter 8, and suddenly in Isaiah 9, the match of hope is struck. In the midst of a dark land, God gives what? Promises. Four promises he gives in Isaiah 9 that we read this morning. Glimmers of hope in the midst of a dark world. So let's walk through these promises very briefly. Let me systematically walk through the four promises that are given in verses 2 through 5. Promise 1 is this. Verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. The promise is that the people of God will not be left in their darkness. This world is dark and depressed and dank, but light will come. The light of God's salvation will come to Judah, and it comes for us as well. That's promise one. Promise number two in verse three. It says this, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy, and they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. He builds on the promise of verse two, where he says the salvation will come, but then he extends and shows that this promise will not remain with Israel and with Judah, but it will extend to all the nations of the earth. 
It multiplied to all the nations. Then far from there, there are two more promises that come from the salvation that the light of God will bring. Verse 4, promise number 3. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the, mid, on the day of Midian. What's he saying? This salvation will come. The light of salvation will come. It will come to all nations. And the nature of this salvation, this promise, is that all those enslaved, that slavery will be broken. The people of Israel have looked and said, yes, would all those who oppress us, would all the brokenness that depresses us, would it be broken and done away with? And he's saying, yes, that is what my light will bring. It will put an end to slavery and oppression, to spiritual slavery and injustice. And that is what he's going to bring in promise three. Promise four, verse five. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel with fire. What is he saying there? He's saying there will be no more reason for armies. They will, the soldiers will burn their military garb. They don't need them anymore because there will be no more war. Peace will reign in this world. Those are the promises. And if you're a people living in darkness and a people living under slavery, essentially like the people of Israel were, oppressed spiritually and financially and physically, to hear these promises in the midst of the darkness would have gleaned with life-altering lights. It would have changed the paradigm in which you see the worlds. And Isaiah is calling us from chapter 9, calling the people of Judah, and he calls us as the people who are reading the Old Testament, awaiting for the New Testament to come. He says, follow the light. It will lead you somewhere. Follow the light of God's promises, and where does the light of God's promises lead you to? Where does the match take you to? To the source of all light, to the light of the world's. You see the same imagery of darkness that is going on in chapter 7 and chapter 8 of Isaiah. And it's invaded with a match of hope that is struck in chapter 9. And it points us to the same imagery that's going on during the, the narrative of Christ's birth. The wise men, what do they see? A light. And what do they do? They follow a light. Simon, in chapter 2 of Luke, verse 29 through 32, he says this, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart. He sees Jesus in the temple for the first time, and this is his reaction. Now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. What is the imagery he is bringing up there? That we have been a people as Israel living in darkness, but now that the Savior, the King, has come, we are now flooded with light. Simon followed the scriptural promises and found the light. The Magi looked to the skies and saw the light, and they followed it, and it brought them to the light of the world. And this is Isaiah's call for us as well, to follow the promises of God, and it will lead you to the light of the worlds. But he has one more promise besides these four. He has one more promise that he gives after these four in verses 2 through 5. And this one last promise is the assurance and the foundation that undergirds all the other promises. And the promise is this. What's going to bring all of these promises about? This light and this salvation and this justice and this end of war and this peace. What's going to bring it about? Verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. The four promises that precede, you follow the promises and you follow them right to the light of the world. And he was who? 
King Jesus. The New Testament makes it clear that Jesus is the child king that is talked about in Isaiah 9. In fact, Jesus claims it for himself. And Matthew 4 says that Jesus comes up to in front of the people and he's teaching. And he says, today Isaiah 9 has been fulfilled in your midst. He says this in Matthew 4 verse 14. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way is the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles... In verse 16, the people dwelling in darkness, darkness imagery again, have seen what? A great light. And for those dwelling in the region, the shadow of death, on them, light has dawned. Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of Isaiah 9. You follow the little pitter-patter of the promises of God in Isaiah 9 and you will find me. You will land smack dab into my lap. You will run right into me. And when he says this great light is coming, what does he say that light brings? He carries on in Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The means by which justice will come to all nations, that all oppressed peoples will become out of slavery and brought into freedom. That peace will invade the wartime and shalom will invade all of the earth. The means by which that happens is a king comes and he establishes his kingdom on this earth. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, this theological understanding, this concept is one of the least talked about topics of scripture. But it is profound in understanding what God is doing in this world. When Jesus came, he came to establish a kingdom here. He came as a king, not simply to injure once and then leave, but to establish a fort within this world, a place in which heaven will begin to invade, and the invisible kingdom of God, heaven itself, will begin to be made visible in this world gradually and slowly. And so the final and great and foundational promise is that a king will come, a child king will come and establish his kingdom here. Now, what is this kingdom like? He goes on in Isaiah 9 as we sing what is in Handel's Messiah that is so beautifully articulated where they sing through Isaiah 9. He sings through these descriptions. And when you, when you live in a monarchical kingdom, the king entirely shapes the kingdom. His character becomes the kingdom's character. So what is the character of this king? What well, describes it this way in Isaiah 9. What's the first description? Wonderful counselor. Counselor, the Hebrew word there indicates that a counselor is one who makes wise and perfect plans. But he's not just any mundane, normal human counselor, but it says that he is a wonderful counselor. His counsels, his plans are perfect, and in fact, they are wondrous. When we understand them and begin to know them, when at the end of all things we see his plans, we will be amazed by them. This is who he is. He is a wondrous counselor, and this is what Jesus came to do, to establish his perfect plan on this earth. But the king needs more than just a wondrous plan, doesn't he? He needs the power to carry it out. That's the second description. He is wonderful counselor, but he's also what? Mighty God. The Hebrew word for mighty here is the word gabor, which is a great mighty word, isn't it? It, you, You have to say it with a base in your stomach, and it means hero or champion. Mighty champion, mighty hero and warrior. The king to come has perfect plans, but not only does he have perfect plans for his kingdom to be established on this world, but he has the power to make his plans come about, 
to establish all he desires to see in this world. That means when, you, when we say that Jesus is mighty God, when he is the perfect king who is establishing his kingdom in this world, and it says that he is mighty, nothing can stop him. Third description. Not only is he mighty God, but he is also everlasting father. The king would draw us into a loving relationship with himself. That's what's being communicated here. Now, there's a, it's a weird thing that, that right here in this prophecy that it's talking about a child king. And we, we see that it's, it should be pretty clear that, I mean, Jesus said, this is me that Isaiah 9 is talking about. And yet, if we understand Trinitarian theology, Jesus is what? What's he called in the Trinity? The Father or the Son? The Son. This gets weird, right? So he's the Son of God, but why is he called Everlasting Father? Well, let's see if we can understand why this is. The reason I think it is, is that the kings of that day, the way that they would be referred to by their people... That when you took the throne, they would call king father because of the role that he would take in their life. He was the means of guidance, of sustenance, and of provision. And we actually see the same interchange going on in the way God refers to himself in relation to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Did you know that God never calls himself father until after, of the father of Israel, of the people in the nation of Israel, until after he has redeemed them from Egypt? You become the father of a nation, the king of it. When you become the king of a nation is when you redeem them and you guide them and you support them and you save them. In the same way, Jesus can be called everlasting father. In other words, everlasting king because he is the means of redemption. Just like God was the means of redemption from the people of Israel and then was called their father. So Jesus is the means of our redemption from spiritual slavery. And he is our sustenance and our guidance and our support. And so we call him king. We can even call him father, even as we call him the son of God and our brother. So he's not just father, though. He's what? An everlasting father. Everlasting, which means that his kingdom is not just for one lifetime or for one season. His kingdom is not like the political party's reign that runs for four or eight years or two years. It is everlasting and it is deep. You see the nature of this king. He has perfect plans. He has the might and the power to bring his plans about. And his plans will never be frustrated. Would you cling to these promises? Would you cling not simply just to his promises, but also the very character and nature of who God is in these moments? Fourth and final description we see is this calls him the prince of peace. Now, in order to understand the full weight of this term, Prince of Peace, we need to, to not think of peace in the sense that we normally do in the 21st century. And that is, we normally think of peace as simply the absence or the ceasing of wars. But in the Hebrew understanding of peace, it is the word shalom that is behind that word. And shalom means that everything is the way that it ought to be. Fathers don't abuse their wives or their children. Mothers don't abandon their kids. Sickness does not invade this world. Disasters do not crush whole peoples. Shalom means that everything on earth will be the way that God has originally planned and desired for it to be. It will be beautiful once again. I turn to this so often because... Tolkien does such a good job in bringing the imagery of these eschatological themes, these end-time themes, 
into his writings. But there is a man city known as Gondor in the midst of the Lord of the Rings. And Gondor was once a mighty kingdom. A huge city. But in the course of those days in which Lord of the Rings is written about, Gondor has fallen on hard times. It is still a great city, but it is not the the greatness that it ought to be. It is gray. The people walk with their heads down and their eyes down. The trees and the flowers don't bloom as they ought to. A once great people appear to be oppressed. Why is that? It's because the king does not sit on his throne. And the theme that is running through those books is this, is that the world will not be okay. It will not be as it ought to be until the king sits on his throne. At the end of those books, what happens? The king sits down and things in that city are finally the way it ought to be. And that's how it is when King Jesus comes. You see, when the Prince of Peace comes and he sits on his throne, and we saw last week, he sits down. He is not pacing. He rules as the mighty authority over all things. He returns and restores the world out of the grayness, out of the oppression, and makes it the way it ought to be. He returns us to Eden of sorts. But a quick correction here. He's not simply taking us back to Eden. We seem to think that that's what heaven's going to be. It's just a return to Eden, but that's not what it's going to be. It's going to be the fulfilled Eden. Eden was this small little region in the world, and it was to expand to the ends of the earth. When Jesus comes back, when the Prince of Peace reigns over the world, Eden will be expanded to every corner of this world, and every single place on this earth will be as it ought to be. It will be Eden as it never was before. And this is the description we see in Revelation, when the lion and the lamb will sit down next to each other, and the serpent and the child will play together. In other words, when the king returns, peace will reign. This is the story of Isaiah 9, and this is the story of the incarnation. That the wonderful counsel of the mighty God, the everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace has invaded this world, but this tension for us still remains, doesn't it? Simon and Garfunkel's songs are still sung. There's still darkness in the world. Jesus has come, and yet don't we still feel the oppression as much today as they did 2,000 years ago? In fact, it may be worse. Why still so dark? Why why are Simon and Garfunkel able to kind of draw this tension out in their songs? We must acknowledge that the reality is that the promises of Isaiah 9 were not meant to be completely fulfilled by the coming first advent of Jesus. They were only partially fulfilled. Well, if that's the case, you go, well, what's the good of Christmas? Seriously, we should ask that question. We should feel the hollowness of it, of sorts, the lack of fulfillment in it. What's so great about the first advent, about Jesus' first coming? Why don't we celebrate it so much and make such a big deal about it? Why don't we simply get around and gather and go, the world is terrible, but God's coming back, and that'll be great. And forget this whole looking back to Christmas thing. We might as well ask the same question of those who lived in Europe after June 6, 1944. Because this is what the incarnation is. You see... D-Day, when when military and historians look back, we could ask the question, what's so great about D-Day? They look back, and those who understand military history can see and say that once we made a, we set foot on that beach, and we gathered a beachhead, the war was not over, but it was over. It was no longer a matter of if we will win the war, but it was a matter of when we will win the war. And this is what happens in Christmas. Christmas is D-Day. 
The incarnation is the Son of God is landing U-boats on the beaches of Normandy. And the cross is the blood that is shed on that beach to take that beachhead to establish God's kingdom in this world. And the raising of a flag over that beach is the resurrection and the ascension of Christ Jesus over this world. And it's saying that when Jesus came, it was God putting his footprint down on this world and saying, I am here and my kingdom is coming and there is nothing you can do to stop me. That's the kingdom of heaven coming. Now, here's the application for us and why you, could, you shouldn't be bored on December 26th. Because when you understand that truth, that reality, you are like those who are in the, French, the, the underground uh, resistance. That when you hear that your freedom has come, that you join with the king as he moves across Europe, liberating this world. That's what our life is about. That when we join with him on December 26th, we are saying he has come. And so now we look forward to this year with excitement because God has caught me up into his army to bring the beauty of his kingdom into all the dark places of this world. December 26th should be yes, yes and amen to December 25. This is good news, but this empowers me to live for today. To invade the fighting of my children with the peace of God. To invade the darkness of this world of those who die of starvation and hunger and cold in this world during this season. That we will invade the dark places of this world. That my marriage is a wreck, but I will reinvest myself in it. Because that's the dark places where this world is invading right now. And we will push back the forces of darkness by the power of an incarnate Christ. Who died to take this beachhead. And who was promised to bring his kingdom to come in all places, in all corners. Are you bored with Christmas? This is the reality of the promise that we have. It's like Aslan. When Mr. Beaver said to the Depensy's children, Aslan is on the move. So December 26th, you wake up, and the first thing you think is Jesus, King Jesus, is on the move, and I will join with him, and I will follow him. Now, that's a story that will change your life. Let's pray. God, there is a light to Christmas that we love. The twinkle, the reflection of the ornaments on our trees from the lights. So I'm sitting in my living room last night and my children are sleeping and I'm talking to my wife. It is a a vision of peace for a few moments. And Lord, we thank you for this season. We thank you for the light in it. We thank you for the joy in it. Lord, we we also recognize that it's so bright because it's shining in the midst of darkness. But Lord, I pray that we would not simply be inspired for a moment and for a day, for a few seasons, few weeks during the season by the light of Christ and his coming, but it would invade our lives. That it would not be the sweetness of this season that simply takes hold of us for a brief period of time. But it would be the meta-narrative of the scriptures that calls us to live to something greater. To live for the kingdom of God in this world. And I pray that that would give us excitement. Not just to make it through this season, but to be empowered by it. So that we can enter into a new year and into a new day following the Christmas season. 
excited to live our lives for you and for your glory, knowing that one day you will make all things new. And we look forward to that day, King Jesus. Amen.